From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. And Ireland is pretty much paper white in terms of forestation. We are the most deforested country in Europe. Upcycling is basically where you take an item and you give it a new lease of life. And that could be something as small as, you know, putting new legs on a table or p- painting, a, you know, a lovely side table. And really there are people in Ireland who are absolutely amazing at this. She got what was called the twisties, which is perfectly natural. You'd uh, say, watch what she does. It's basically where the gymnasts lose their orientation when they're doing a twist move. So they can't land, can't nail the land. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, talking non-stop for more than 27 hours, how to plant a forest of native trees, and why is man's best friend man's best friend? That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's dangerously overdue walkies. On this morning's nine o'clock show, Oliver Callan began his musings with the long and winding tale of his attendance at Sunday's county club football final in Monaghan. Hello to the tens of thousands of people who went to uh, county finals yesterday across the land in the golden October sunshine. Twelve county finals in football, two in hurling and all sorts of under 14s and, and, and underage and minor matches as well. And that, that October sunshine was kind of jeering us after the days of, of flooding. Um, good morning, East Cork. I hope their spirits are starting to rise somewhat um, the, 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 after the floods and the multicoloured weather alerts. I was listening to Brendan O'Connor's panel yesterday and he put it to his newspaper panel and they had no... He asked them, did they know what the yellow and orange warnings meant? Nobody. And these are the most studious people who read all the news, read everything. Nobody could say what it is, but it met Aaron are explaining that they're going to uh, tell us what's likely, what we're likely to see with, uh, with the weather alerts from now on, rather than uh, discussing the, the millimetres of rain. Uh, so yeah, uh, for those of us who were in Clonus yesterday, we were treated for the county final, old-fashioned football. We were mocked in Ulster for blanket puke football, with serious intensity, as Pat Spillane used to uh, famously label it. Uh, treated old-fashioned, no blanket defences, thanks to God. There was a little bit of back-passing. I think it happens everywhere now, but there was good old attacks, uh, attacking football. Uh, our Inneskeen Grattans, sadly beaten by Ross, by Scotstown, who are a bit of a superpower in Monaghan football. So they've now eight county titles in the last 10 years. But it was really close for the, for most of the game. And I see in the Louth final, it looks it was pretty close there. RD, Mary's won by a point there. So great entertainment and something for our little parish to build on. We haven't won the county Final in 75 years wouldn't have been so neat and you see those headlines this time of the year and uh, 33 years since the since the last final I was nine then so uh, but just as much crack to go at 42 John McEntee is the manager there in Inneski and you remember him he was one of the Armagh uh, twins that won the All-Ireland in 2002 it would have been yeah and uh, his twin they're across McLean that they've won loads of um, loads of titles there as well and his twin Tony is the manager of Sligo at the moment so when it gets into you you're in it for life. Um, so he's he's sticking around, I hope, building on it. But, and the Inneskeen under-14 girls carried the day earlier in the Camogie final. So not all was lost. I'm looking at the um, the Cavan result here. And uh, it was 5.15 to Gauna. And King scored 13 points um, in Breffney Park. So it wasn't close about the rest of the place. But people had a bit of crack. You meet really, ga- you meet interesting people. There was a fella selling headbands and when you have a Dublin accent, it really stands out in Clonus, you know, because you have you have the drawl of South Monaghan people and then you have the kind of northern twinge that comes up there towards Monaghan, you know, the head of Humphreys, be out by Newblitz. And then when you hear this accent in the middle of it all, you're going, wow, did you come up here? Where are you from? And he was, he's called Ray Cunningham 
And he was telling me he's from Finglas in Dublin and he's in the business of hats, flags and headbands. And he has been since he was a child. He went with his father. He says, we travel all over the country. You get the best part of the year out of it between the county and the club titles, uh, uh, championships. And he was selling for the minor, which was Carrick and Blaney. Castle Blaney won that. Uh, so he was interested. He was in Offaly, he said, last week. He got the Monaghan uh, straw this week. And um, there's kind of a group of them. They go around selling headbands outside um, random venues around the country all, pretty much all year round. So I thought it was it was fascinating. I said, you must have a whole shed of, of headbands. He said, I have two. We have two of them. Then he unzipped his thing. I said, I said, yeah, you're just in for the business or you're kind of a you're proper gar man or what. Unzipped his thing and he had the six in a row Dublin... <laughs> Dublin, Dublin shirt on, which I think he made and printed himself. Let's face it, because he is in the business, he could do what he wanted. Uh, but that that was Ray Cunningham. Was, good morning, to Ray. He must be wrecked after the day. Uh, that was so it was really good. He, these are the kind of people that are at the edge of the GA, you know, not not literally in past the door, very much part of it, but sort of on the edge of it. So good crack chatting to him. Well, the game didn't go the way Oliver wanted, but at least he met the guy flogging the merch, and so was born the first five minutes of this morning's show. Now, let's have more sports news, or some sports news, depending on your point of view. A Cork teenager has become the most decorated underage Irish female sports star since Katie Taylor. She won two gold medals, and she's now a triple world champion. This is Aideen Mullins, or to give her her um, martial arts name, Aideen the Block Mullins. She's only 17. She won two gold medals at the ISKA, or is it ISCA, World Championships in Munich. Uh, which adds to her European title that she won last month and the World Championship ranking that she clinched in Venice in the summer. So she's number one in Ireland and in the UK, a world gold medalist and a European under-18 champion. So says her very proud mother, Cynthia. Um, and they're absolutely over the moon. So she is one to watch. So she's really inspired by Katie Taylor and Kelly Harrington. So World Championship, um, and it's all in, in uh, Thai boxing, basically, is what it is. It's martial arts. And we seem to do extremely well. There's a huge generation of female Irish athletes uh, doing unbelievable stuff. And it all comes from, really, from two women, isn't it? Katie and Kelly. And the, the, and uh, Kelly Harrington's book, by the way, is so good. It was out last year, but it's just so good. And it kind of it tells you all of the... Uh, the, the pathway for, for female f- sports stars, basically. Come on, you girls in green, right? Now, we're all Swifties, of course, but in days of yore, we were very much Team Britney. And that's where Oliver brings his attention next. I'm going to mention this because you're going to hear a lot about Britney Spears this week. Um, she's two years after she escaped the, the, the famous conservatorship as it was. So it was kind of a very legal locked in guardianship under her father's guidance, controlled everything to do with her uh, from her money down to pretty much what she was doing with her life every day. And um, she cut a sad figure during those years. But she's written her memoir now. It's called The Woman and Me. And uh, she, Simon & Schuster, the publishers, paid $15 million for the rights. Uh, but it's already topped the pre-sale chart. It's all about pre-sales nowadays, isn't it? And it's coming out on Tuesday around the... You're going to hear a lot. It's going to be a very tough week for Justin Timberlake. But you won't be feeling sorry for him if, when you go into that story because it's deeply unpleasant because the tabloids went to town with her on her when he did Cry Me a River, which was intimating that she cheated on him and so on. It's gossipy. You'll find out, but it, it was very much... You know, uh, she, she is very much the victim of all that unpleasantness. It's a short attention span, to be sure, but that's the Britney mention done. Next, it's back to Scorsese. Now, we were talking about Martin Scorsese's film, 
Pillars of the Flower Moon last week, three and a half hours long. How has it done in America in particular? It was battling in a reminder of Barbie Heimer, Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, which is her concert film, took on Martin Scorsese at 80, uh, still at the top of his game. Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, Taylor Swift beat him, uh, but, but you know, a three-hour-half-hour film uh, aimed at, um, aimed at uh, film connoisseurs, shall we say, the cognoscenti of film. She obviously beat him there because her tickets are very expensive. Her film is two hours, 40 minutes, which is a slight edit of her three hour plus concert. Uh, so people are, there's no more talk about low attention spans of young people. They're well able to sit through 40 songs or so. Uh, but Martin Scorsese, this is quite interesting. Killers of the Flower Moon, which is, you know, is all about, uh, it's a historical crime drama set in the 1920s. It's about a load of murders against the Osage nation of America, Native Americans and stars Robert De Niro, DiCaprio and um, your man who won the Oscar who's in uh, From the Mummy Returns. Brendan Fraser, that's his name, yeah. Um, has done very well. It's the, it's the third best opening weekend for Scorsese. The best one, the biggest ever film he had was Shutter Island. The biggest opening, 40 million it made, 2010 that was, wow. And The Departed, of course, 2006. And um, Jack Nicholson is more or less retired now, hasn't he? Still alive, goes to basketball games. He's obsessed with basketball and he just sits there just being Jack Nicholson going, I'm not working anymore, I'm just being Jack. It's kind of a... An era has ended where actors could just play themselves endlessly on screen and you're going to go, he's kind of scary in real life as well. He's got those kind of Joker eyebrows. Anyway, Killers of Flower Moon, love to go. Can't understand or figure out when I'm actually going to have time to go and see it, as all of us are saying. Seen it twice already. The trailer, that is. I mean, who has the time? At least it looks like it features less men talking in rooms, scenes, than Oppenheimer. How many extra hours do we need in order to watch these really long movies? Hours have been in Oliver's mind of late. I'm reading here about the, the clock change, which is next weekend, but I was thinking about it all this weekend. Are we affected? But it's the extra hour in bed, so it'll be grand. But no, our friend Sheena Dunn, who was in, you might remember she was in with her weighted pillow for people who have the restless leg syndrome uh, issue and it also stays cool all night because it's kind of glass in it. She was here last year, December last year, would you believe? Um, her thing is called CS Sleep. But she'd been talking about that if only this was the last clock change we have. She's a sleep expert. She has a, a sleep medicine degree or she studied it in the University of Oxford. And she's saying that we're going to be more affected, uh, the time switch next weekend in Ireland, because of where we are. And the, you know, we're impacted more by clock changes because we live in the west of a time zone in Europe, the furthest, most western point. Uh, and this is because you get more natural light in the evening. If you're in the west of a time zone, the sun will set later. But they're stealing that from us, of course, uh, with the time change to help them in the, the bigger part, the more powerful part of Europe. So the EU passed a resolution four years ago to abolish all these clock changes, but nothing has been done since. And we're still waiting for it. But she's telling us all to prioritise our sleep. The common sleep problem right now is people who wake up at 5am. Uh, but the clock change means it's going to be 4am, which makes it harder for those people to get back to sleep and you get all the anxiety about it and so on. Uh, so she's just advising us to try and change your routine somewhat, but is also acknowledging that it's going to be difficult to change those routines when you have the kids on midterm break and into a bank holiday weekend and all that. Imagine being able to just decide to get more sleep and then just getting more sleep. It's enough to drive on to take a nap. So what better place to leave the morning musings from the nine o'clock show than right here? On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Colm O'Mungoin, sitting in for Claire, spoke to sustainability journalist with the Sunday Times Ireland, Joe Linehan, about upcycled furniture. 
What is it about the furniture industry on the whole? How big is it here in Ireland in terms of what it's worth to the economy? It's absolutely exploded. And I suppose we can really trace back that big change to 2020, 2021, because obviously at that time we went through a big change socially in Ireland. Many of us were spending more time at home than ever before because of the pandemic. And suddenly we were looking at our homes in a completely different way. We were thinking, God, this sofa isn't that comfortable. Or, okay, now my home needs to work as a home office. It needs to be the crèche. It needs to be where I chill out in the evening. So everyone kind of reimagined their space. And what that led to was an explosion in interiors and interest in interiors, and then obviously shopping. So the, the market grew by about 20% here in Ireland uh, between 2021 and 2022 and that's the growth that we're going to see continue. It's really an area that is exploding here in Ireland which is wonderful but there's ways to go about it in maybe a more mindful and uh, more sustainable way and also keeping pocket in mind because as you mentioned furniture can be very expensive. Decking out a home, especially if it's a brand new blank canvas, can be extremely expensive and it can be quite wasteful. We know that in the EU we throw away about 10 million tonnes of furniture each year. Less than 10% of that gets recycled. So we need to rethink how we're approaching that lovely home decor project in a really fresh way. All right. So you say recycling there in terms of what's not recycled, but what's upcycling? So upcycling is basically where you take an item and you give it a new lease of life. And that could be something as small as, you know, putting new legs on a, ta- on a table or p- painting, a, you know, a lovely side table. And really there are people in Ireland who are absolutely amazing at this. I had a great chat with the lady, Joanne Mooney, at the weekend uh, at the Permanent GSB Ideal Home Show. She is literally one of Ireland's leading upcyclers. And if you go onto her website or her Instagram, you will not believe what she does to old pieces of furniture. She also offers great workshops. So if you're not off like me I wouldn't be great with the DIY but she offers great workshops and she has a new book out so that would be really for people who want to take a piece maybe a piece that's been at home or that was in the family for years that they love and they've been looking at it and think, oh, what will I do with this that's a great way to just reimagine it give it a new lease of life, paint it, give it an, uh, a fresh a fresh look. So that's really the upcycling trend. And that's become really popular because, first of all, it's unbelievably inexpensive to do. All you're really buying is, you know, some paintbrushes, some varnish, some sanding, and just going with the technique or watching a YouTube video and learning how to do it. So that's very, very cost-effective. And we have tons of great quality furniture. That's what I'd say to people. You know, a lot of the furniture that comes out now, fast furniture, kind of following the fast fashion trend, it's not being made what? in Quality. So do yeah, it's define what you mean rate. by fast furniture. What's it made from? Is are you talking about stuff that was assembled from flat pack or are you talking about ready assembled stuff that may be made for lighter lighter, less durable materials? Yes, so I suppose if many of us may be familiar with the term fast fashion. And really what that uh, indicates is that an item has been made extremely cheaply, it's been made very quickly, and it's also been made to not last the test of time. It might be just made to, you know, be used a couple of times. And we're seeing that now be adapted in interiors because interiors have become very popular and everybody wants that quick fix. So inexpensive, cheaply made, not great quality. So if you are buying a piece, Staying away from the fast interiors is really important. First of all, you don't want something breaking or becoming run down if you've invested in it. Even if it has been cheap, you want to make sure that it lasts as long as possible. And second of all, that's another thing that adds to the waste. So there was a great study done by Gumtree in the UK that found that fast interiors, because they're so cheap, people will just buy them on impulse. And then they'll bring them home and say oh gosh, this doesn't work in the room or I've no place for this. So again, that adds to the waste. About right. two out of three, two out of three fast, fast interior purchases are regrets. 
so that, again they're going to landfill. So we want to see uh, or, or, or they may or they may end up in secondhand shops. Yes, they may. And you know what? Secondhand is wonderful and there's definitely a place for it. And, you know, in Ireland, there are tons of charities who are, you know, trying to rehome people, who need furniture, who need pieces. But again, if you're going to be passing something on, it would be better to be passing on a piece that's quality and that's going to last the test of time. So again, going to those quality pieces is really, really important. All right. Joe Linehan, sustainability journalist with the Sunday Times Ireland, talking to Cullum O'Mungan about upcycled furniture this morning. Clonus now on today's Playback Daily as Joe Duffy spoke to retailer Tony Morgan about the government's deposit return scheme for plastic bottles and aluminium or steel cans that's due to come into effect in February next year. Spoiler alert, Tony wasn't happy about it. We have decided uh, that the scheme is coming in. We've decided that we're going to remove all um, drinks from our fridge and cease to sell them. It's just not viable for us. What do you mean? You're not going to sell Coca-Cola, Fanta, nope. Club, 7-Up? Water, water, nothing. And pla- body gown and the plastic bottles, 7-Up and the plastic nope. bottles? No. Gone? Why? It's it's another added expense which businesses can ill afford at the moment. Also, you just you just said there that this, um, cans and bottles recycling is at 70%. And the single-use plastic directive should be at 77% by 2025. This is, this is achievable without introducing this scheme. And overall plastic recycling is at 30%. So I think we should be targeting other areas rather than the bottles and the cans. Mm. Now, there's a new was, government quango set up. Of course, there is. We have repack. I don't know what they do. Well, they do ads. Um, they don't actually collect any uh, rubbish and they charge every shop money to put the sticker in the window. And we have repack. Yeah. Uh, I say, still don't know what they what they do. And then return is the new one. R-E-T-U-R-N. That's a new government quango. I don't know where their news banking offices are, but no doubt they'll have them. Um, they, they also say on their website, their website is beautiful. I don't know. Have you looked at the website? So I'm actually looking at it here. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You, 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 yeah. you, you'd want to leave your current position and get involved in this. It's so, it sounds so easy. They say you can have a machine in your shop. It's called a reverse vending machine. In other words, you put the plastic bottle back in and it gives you money. What about that? Well, first of all, we're on the border here with Northern Ireland. Now, the cans in Northern Ireland aren't going to have the return uh, um, logo. logo on it because yeah. a lot of people from the Republic go into Northern Ireland to shop and vice versa and if you put in your Northern Ireland can it spits it out what's going to happen then I was speaking to Jane uh, who's the director of Blue uh, Dolphin Environmental this morning I just asked her about this okay. and she says, her reaction was that it has taken so long to get people to put their cans and separate their cans and their, and their um, bottles and put, and put them in the recycle bin and this is just going to send a mixed message. They're going to come into shops. Let's say someone comes in with 100 cans, 60 or from the north. They're going to be spat out. You're going to, they're going to get their 40 by 15 cent. What happens to those 60 cans then? <laughs> Your floor. Your floor. Yeah. Floor over, over a ditch or whatever. And, and are, are this new, is, this, is this new Quango return? Are they supplying these machines free? No, I believe they're 13,000 plus. To buy? To buy? 13,000. 25,000. 
So then the only the only organisations that would be able to buy these machines are the Super Values and the Tesco's and the Lidl's and that would mean people looking for their money back or kids collecting 100 cans in their black plastic sacks go into Super Value, Tesco, Lidl and they don't get cash, they get a voucher. So it brings more business to the big the big multinationals. Yeah, it actually says on it says there's a bit of a mixed message there on the website as well. It says you can uh, on one part of the website it says you get refund your deposit in cash or against other purchases. On another part it says refund in cash or towards a charitable cause. But also on the website it says anywhere that sells drinks with the return logo must mm. accept your empty cans yeah. and bottles. Yeah. But does this imply that if I don't sell drinks with the return logo, I'm exempt, exempt from it? There, what do you I can. Well, you can buy, I can presume you can buy uh, cans from any of the 27 cans and bottles from the other 27 EU countries. That's I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to get out of this. Just, are, are you, could, you could, could, can you go to a wholesaler a few miles over the border and buy your Coke and your Club Orange there exactly. and your Ballygown? Yes, but I, I don't, I don't want, I don't, I can understand the, that the, the scheme is supposed to have certain merits, but I just can't see the merits of it. People are seventy percent recycling at the moment. Just encourage people to recycle. Yeah. So, so what it means now is every shop uh, that sells a can with this, this R logo on it is a recycling bank. Yes. People can and bring. Then if, if, if you don't have to have the the machine, you can take them in. But we can't be in here sorting a bag of a hundred cans, dirty <laughs> cans, <with laughs> beer and Coca Cola, spilling out of them and. During the summer, wasps and then nowhere to store them. When are they collected? And uh, I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, but if, if remember the young fellas and the young ones going around, they collect the cans, okay? And yeah. you know what they could do? You know the way there are already are at every bottle bank. There is a, a aluminium recycling uh, can spot invariably. They, the, if yeah. if I was a young entrepreneur, I'd sit there, probably bring a chair, one of me. The dad's folding chairs in me, man. I'd sit there a whole roll of black plastic sacks and when people come to get rid of their cans I'd say, Mrs, Mr, can I, I'll take your cans. I'd throw them into the black plastic sack instead of into the uh, the recycling container and then I'd run across to the shop, me nearest shop that sells Coke or Ballygown or whatever and I'd drag me bags in, clickety-clackety, clickety-clack, and you say, I say, mister, I've uh, 300 cans there. Can I have me uh, 60 quid? That's that's not a bad way to make money. Yeah, but as long as all the cans <laughs> have got the return symbol on them. Yeah, who's going to check? No, well, we, we used to collect bottles as youngsters as well and bring them yeah. back and get our, our tuppence back. That was fine. The bottles were going back straight, straight back for recycling, washed and filled again. Now, you know, the only the only organisation that's managed, the only uh, lobby group that's managed to get an exception uh, for these plastic bottles are the IFA, the milk companies. If you buy, which most milk now is in a plastic bottle, that's you, that's you, you don't pay a, a 25 cent deposit on back and well done to the IFA for getting out of that one. A decidedly disgruntled Tony Morgan talking about the government's upcoming deposit return scheme for plastic bottles and aluminium or steel cans that will be with us in February. Although not with Tony, I guess.
food writer Catherine Cleary joined Oliver Callan this morning to talk about the forest she started planting a few years ago. I was at a, a, a talk in Trinity last week and they showed a map of uh, Europe in terms of afforestation. And, you know, the darker green areas were, you know, the, the Scandinavian countries. Mm. And Ireland is pretty much paper white in terms of forestation. We are the most deforested country in Europe, having been, you know, uh, forest from tip to toe, uh, you know, over the uh, there were waves of of loss of trees over the centuries but so we yeah, are the we're worst we're the most deforested in all of Europe really yes we have only 2% of native woodland cover in, in the country about 11% total forest cover but only 2% of that is, is our native trees and when you mentioned the Sitka spruce that they're, they're the ones that they grow faster don't they but they grow they... fast and the, and the timber industry is built to uh, to use them and obviously building with timber is good so you know we can we can home grow homes as well which is a good element of forestry but it can't all be that it's like anything else it needs balance it's a system it's an ecosystem it's nature you know we can't extract everything and then hope that it's going to work and as people who live near these forests know when they cut them down it really looks like the end of the world doesn't it there's just nothing really underneath Uh, but to to look at the positive aspects of stuff native woodland how are we on, on, on the native trees in Ireland we have quite a small number of native trees because we're an island and mm. again there are people saying oh we shouldn't concentrate on native trees but the truth about our native trees is that all of our um, insects all of our bird life all of our soil life is really married to these to these trees these small number of, of beautiful trees most of them lose their leaves at this time of the year so we've got a great swathes of colour across the country at autumn time um, and, and we've kind of lost touch with them, I think. You know, we I wrote recently, I, I mean, I sound very old when I say it, but I think we can probably recognise car brands better than we can recognise the leaves of, of the trees that <laughs> okay. make us. And, That's and actually make true. clean air and, and food and soil and everything that we need. So um, it's three years ago now, is it 2020? You decide, look, um, I can't stop looking uh, and be feeling sad for the lack of trees in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, with yourself and your husband, Liam. That's right. What did yeah. you do? Well, there were two prongs to it, really. Uh, myself and my very good friend, Ash Conrad-Jones, set up an urban forestry social enterprise called Pocket Forest. So this was all about trying to get small areas of native trees into really, really small areas of yeah. the city with communities. But in the background, um, Liam and I were also thinking we'd like to do this on a bigger scale. Uh, so we just started looking on Daft for agricultural land. And, you know, where can we find the cheapest land in Ireland? Where can we find land that uh, nobody else really wants because it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to farm and and then just go with the native woodland scheme and plant a native woodland. Did you know what sort of land you were looking for? Because Cheap. <laughs> yeah, but not, <laughs> the trees won't grow everywhere, will they? No, this is true. And or, or grow so, well, I should say. Well, this they will is, grow and, anywhere. And also, you know, there are environmental reasons not to even put native woodland in places right? on bogs and things like that because they're actually doing a better job of sequestering carbon than forests can. Oh, the bog itself. The bog yeah. itself. So is, you see rushes. Yeah. It's kind of um, well, it's carbon not, sink, no? Not necessarily rushes. More sphagnum moss would be indicative of a bog. Oh, and, I see, yes. And, West of Ireland. you know, not draining those, re-wetting those. That's a huge, that's a huge help for our, our carbon emissions and, and that's a big project that's been done across the country as well. Yeah. So we worked with a forester from the off. Everything we'd look at on Daft, we'd send to, to our forester, Bernard oh, Kiernan, right. and he'd go and look at it and say, yes, this is suitable this is or suitable ground. Um, there was an so eye opener, I'd say, shopping for land. It was, yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, you got a real insight as to how difficult it is to buy land. Um, you know, we came close to a couple of places. One was owned by two priests and one of them wanted to sell and the other one didn't. The estate agent filled really? me in. He was pretty frustrated at that stage. Um, <laughs> there was another That's person, a novel. That's a novel way to do that. Another person who wanted to sell. We'd agreed a price and then we were asked, could we put 
maybe about half of it under the table so the bank wouldn't know that the <laughs> price that had been received. So, you know, it is difficult. Uh, most of our land, I think somebody was saying recently, about 65% of land is owned by 6% of people. So, you know, it is, it's a family resource that's given down through family generations. It's True. hard to become a landowner or a farmer. It doesn't come up for sale too often as a result. No, no. So, so you, where did you settle on? We settled on Roscommon. And a Leitrim would be the cheapest, I think, for, for land. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Um, Liam's from Longford originally. We thought about Longford, but Longford land is very expensive. And Leitrim is has become more expensive. And I think even Roscommon has become more expensive as yeah. well since. Everywhere, we've... basically. Yeah. yeah. And uh, are you from a, uh, so Liam is from a, uh, is he from a rural background? Is he, was he in a town in Longford? Yeah, or? I mean, we're kind of urban culties. He's, <laughs> yeah, he's he's from a small a small village called Ochnacliff. Um And I, I grew up kind of countryside. I moved from a, from a bungalow to a house on the side of a hill when I was about eight so you know we both kind of ran away from that in, Somewhere in the Pale? I'm, um, in Wicklow yeah. In Wicklow yeah. okay yes yeah. no, so, that's, still uh, country, that's still rural Yeah no we did and we did the good life farming my parents had animals we had cattle we, oh, had, right. uh, we grew things raspberries, potatoes you know there was lots of work that I absolutely hated Little did I know when you were restaurant <laughs> critiquing that uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were culture and heart Agricultural roots <laughs> Yeah because that's important for food and understanding of the of that so there must yeah. have been a draw from your childhood or something there is there to have yeah, this Yeah I think so I think we kind of circled back a bit to something that and and it was very much a, a yearning during COVID, I think. I think a lot of people felt that yeah. sense when everything else, all of our distractions and all of our shiny lives are put on hold. There is something still there in nature and we we kind of circled back to it. So it definitely came from that instinct. Made be, there's many gardeners. I wonder if they held on to the hobby since, uh, but you yeah. you went a bit further. Uh, so so you get, what, how many acres do you manage to get? In, we got about come? 40 acres. Um, Very good. Yeah, and we've planted at this point around about 27 of that. You've tw- planted 27 acres, 27 acres. Uh, with native native yeah. trees. And yeah. they must be, they're quite small, obviously. Very three. small, knee-high. Some of them not even knee-high. Um, some of them would have only been one-year-old trees. So, yeah, very, very small. Now you can kind of see some of those faster-growing trees like birches are growing above the rushes. So it's beginning to look like there's something in there other than rushes. But Oh, they're only going over the rushes now. Well, just now, you. yeah. Uh, so you get 40 acres. Is it, it's farmland. Yes. Do you have yeah. to do, get any rezoning? Is it complicated before you can, I can you just need a rock up with a tree? You need a yeah, licence to plant. You need a licence okay. from the Department of Agriculture. There's a new scheme now where you can plant up to a hectare without a licence. You need to work okay. with a forester to do that. Again, just to make sure that you're not, you can't plant near to a ring forge. You can't plant too near to somebody's house. You know, there are good, good um, rules around oh, where right. the trees can go uh, and again what kinds of trees suit the land um, Is that well enforced you wonder? Um, it's, I mean to get the grant you need to have you need to play by the rules I okay. suppose people can plant trees privately um, but yeah technically you need a licence So um, forms Forms, lots and lots of forms. The forester fills out the forms, does that heavy lifting, <laughs> thankfully. Um, yeah, lots and lots of forms. And we were in an interim scheme because the full full forestry program hadn't been uh, given the, the the green stamp by Europe at that stage. So you know, we were there was lots of forms to be filled. Oh, so what the scheme? So it must, it must be expensive to, to buy all these trees and, and put them in. Yeah. The, so the costs for us, uh, it depends on where you are. We had few, lower costs in terms of fencing. If you're if you're planting anywhere with deer, you need deer fencing, which is massively expensive. It's okay. very it's going to be very expensive to establish forests in those areas. Unless Otherwise, they'll just the eat everything. Population. They um, eat everything. Yeah, yeah they're, they're devils. Um, we didn't we don't have a deer issue around there. So the fencing was pretty straightforward. The digger went through and tipped a sod every metre or so and the, the trees were planted into that. And then, so yeah, all of those costs are covered by the, the establishment grant. Oh, so they cover the grant. And again, yeah. more forms for your, for your grant yeah. before you do anything. <laughs>
Catherine Cleary there talking to Oliver Callan this morning about the impressive feat of planting 40 acres of forest, a project she started in 2020. Have you any idea what the biles means? Or how about the Fosbury flops? Or maybe Gary Owen? You'll probably get that one. Because they're all sports terms. And this morning, Colm O'Mungan spoke to journalist and communications expert Peter Sweeney and sports journalist Sinead Kyo about sports terms named after their creators or the place in which they were created. Simone Biles, I suppose, we should start with because she she's a, an athlete that transcends her sports. She not alone has one move named after her, she has five moves named after her. There's the Biles 1 and 2 on the vault, there's the Biles on the balance beam and there's the Biles 1 and 2 on the floor. The the most recent one was at the World Championships in Antwerp just recently there, uh, the Biles on the ba- uh, the Biles 2, should I say, on the vault. Um, and I actually had to write this down because it's... Go for it. it describe it, it's, it's describe a, what this is and it, then we can explain why she's only back after an absence. It might have something to do with it. Yeah, so, um, and I would encourage anybody uh, near a search engine at the moment in the screen to look it up and maybe watch it in slow motion. It's a backflip off a vault with two full rotations and pikes. So basically she's wrapped up touching her toes uh, to her nose basically as she comes off a vault so you run it full pelt up to the vault hit it backwards uh, do a, a somersault and um, uh, two full rotations um, it's in, it's incredible she's th- these debates you, know, that you can never really answer them, but she, she's most greatest likely the greatest the, uh, greatest gymnast of all time maybe one of the greatest athletes of all time mm. uh, four Olympic gold medals she's 23 world championship gold medals uh, she's 26 years of age then there's all that she's done outside of uh, gymnastics uh, in, in terms of equality and, and uh, anti-racism. And then the US gymnastics was such a toxic organisation that allowed um, uh, sexual abusers to, to, to prosper. She she was abused herself. She took that on head on, came out in public. Larry Nasser, the, the, the worst of those offenders, was, was put behind bars. So like she, she transcends her sport and I suppose people who don't know anything about gymnastics, people who don't know anything about sports know who Simone Biles yeah. is and that's why she's the greatest and that's why she has five moves named after her which is incredible. You know, you think about someone like Olga Corbett, one of the greatest of all time. She had two moves named after her. One of them had to be banned. It was called the dead loop. You should look that up too. Uh, it was so too dangerous. <laughs> she did well, it. it was like, da- and, and, and then there's this, she, Simone Biles is back after after a dose of the twisties. The twisties, yeah. What are the twisties? So she, uh, in Rio uh, in 2016, she won her uh, four Olympic gold medals. She she burst onto the, the world consciousness, I suppose. And the expectation was that she was going to clean, uh, sweep the boards again uh, f- five years later, as it was Tokyo 2020, which took place in 21 because of the delayed due to COVID. She won a silver medal, which is still an amazing achievement. But uh, she couldn't perform to her own high standards in the vid- individual events. She got what was called the twisties, which is perfect perfectly natural you'd, uh, you'd uh, say watching what she does it's basically where the gymnasts lose their orient- orientation when they're doing a twist move so they can't land can't nail the land and they don't you have to land on your two feet upright where she was either falling or stumbling which you know <laughs> when you watch what she do- does is pretty uh, pretty uh, understandable but to come back from that then um win those world championships again have a new move named after and sorry we should say in gymnastics to have a move named after you have to be the first to nail it in a competition which she, she's done Alright and, and to recap five new n- moves named after you've got the Biles the Biles 2 Biles on the beam Biles on the vault and 
Uh, the Boyle's 2 on the oh, vault yeah. also. Okay. Yeah. Boyle's 2 on the vault. Uh, just before we get to Sinead, are there other sports where this kind of innovation is common where people you know where where it's conducive to people having moves named after yeah them. so what I just said there about you have to be the first person to do it a competition to have it named after you and it's actually then officially named after you whereas other things that we would probably come to later on like the Cruyff turn or the Penenka they they don't have to name it after anybody yeah. it's just a move it just becomes popular parlance whereas. Uh, in, in gymnastics and ice skating, two artistically judged sports where you have to do certain moves to get scores, to, to build a score, to then uh, try and win. Are and, and they choreograph it themselves as well. So it's more likely to be named after them because, exactly. you know, they're designing it. Yeah, they, they invented it. They invented it. Right. So it kind of seems fitting that it would be named after them. It then. does, yeah. And yeah. Like, most of us don't know an awful lot about ice skating. But if you ever watch it, you hear them talking about the axle and the salcow and the, the lutz. They're three different types of jumps named after uh, ice skaters who, who did them first over 100 years ago at this stage but they're still part of the, the popular vernacular and the, the moves that the the various ice skaters that ice dancers would, would pull off in competition Alright Sinead you do know a bit about ice skating you're, you're talking enthusiastically with the level of, of choreography <laughs> that, that's involved there uh, and staying with the Winter Olympics, what's a Bradbury? Because to me, Bradbury's was a family that was famous for baking in my area growing up. <laughs> but uh, what is a Bradbury a, when it comes to ice skating? A Bradbury, it's named after Stephen Bradbury. So um, it originates in the 2000 and, uh, 2002 Winter Games in Salt Lake City. So Stephen Bradley, uh, Bradbury is, um, he's an Australian uh, speed skater. And yeah, I suppose Australia wouldn't be associated with winter sports necessarily, but he had before he uh, made it to that final in the uh, 2002 uh, Winter Games, he had already been to three other Olympics, but this was his first time in the final. Um, So the Bradbury, he actually was coming last, so he was was behind kind of the pack, I suppose, in that final. Uh, So... What happened was that the, all of the other competitors were up near the front and there was a collision and they, they all fell to the ground and he was coming last. So you think, God, this guy hasn't got any chance of winning gold. But because they all fell to the ground, he just glided past them, past the finish line. So um, zipping past a pile up in ice skating. Yeah. Is Bradbury. Is a bra- well, or just winning because everybody else falls down. Because or, everyone yeah. else falls down. But, all, but it was actually strategic because he knew like this was his first time to make it to a final. And he knew that he maybe didn't have the same comp competence or skill as the others so he kind of thought right I'll just stay back here I'll wait for a mistake or I'll wait you know for a gap Um, and short course uh, speed skating uh, the six on a really tight rink and it's very physical there's a lot of pushing and jostling alright so it's foreseeable there could be a point yeah yeah yeah. it's it's, it's an astute tactical move as opposed to just a Hail Mary yeah exactly Um, and so not only could there be you know, someone could slip and fall, but you can be eliminated uh, if you, you know, obstruct another player. So okay. he's kind of like looking out for all of that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that that's quite a common thing in sport, though. If you, and if there's no shame in uh, winning something just because everyone else falls down or, uh, you know, <laughs> well, no, I mean, everyone I think falls a lot off of people their horse. Have had Bradbury's in other, Bradbury's, in other yeah, yeah, yeah. My own yeah. mediocre sporting career. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just about being cute, I suppose, and just outsmarting your, your opponent. So it can, it can be applied kind of nearly in any in, in any life, sport in yeah. general, in yeah, life yeah. in general yeah. sports journalist Sinead Gyo and Peter Sweeney journalist and communications expert talking to Colm Omunga this morning about sports moves named after their creators or their place of creation
The Historical Society in Trinity College Dublin, known as the HIST, might just have broken a world debating record. The HIST's auditor and chairperson, Anya Kennedy, spoke to Ray Darcy this afternoon. Did you do it? Did you break the record? Yes, yeah, 27 hours and 58 minutes. Wow. So you've debated for 27 hours and how many minutes? 58. And what was the current record? 24 hours. You've smashed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're pretty tired, but yes, yes. we're very excited. When did you start? <laughs> we started at 10 a.m. yesterday. Right. And you just finished when? Uh, oh, I, someone just asked me this and I actually don't know what time, but um, that's what I've been told. Is, that's what Guinness World Records said. It's 27 hours and 58 minutes. Probably about half an hour ago at this stage. Yes. Uh, yeah. How tired um, are you, Anya? Well, I have not I have not slept a wink, so I'm a little bit delirious. Yes. Um, it's hard to tell which is like the adrenaline Red Bull wearing off, which is just exhaustion. But, um, yeah, so, what, the excitement's overpowering it all anyway. Yeah, and this was to celebrate the fact that you're in the Guinness Book of Records. So, yeah, we we were just, we thought, we were um, awarded a Guinness World Record for being the oldest student society in the world. Mm. So we were planning our big celebrations for that, um, which we had some really fun ones last week. Um, but when we were planning it, we thought, what a better way to celebrate than trying to break another Guinness World Record, which seems like a really good idea at the time. Um, in the planning process, wasn't didn't always feel like a good idea, but definitely worth it now. Right. Uh, and uh, how many motions did you get through in those 27 hours? So we realised it was going to be 26 motions, um, basically, and, and we thought, like, what, we're 254 years old, so we decided to do a real motion from each decade of our uh -huh. society's history. We have, we have very impressive records, and um, so they're all real motions. You know, we started with our very first motion from 1770, and then we took one from the 1780s onwards right. all the way until the 2020s. It's, it's like the debating version of Taylor Swift's eras thing, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. It's a great... I'm, my committee will love that. I'll tell them that. <laughs> well, here's uh, the, the one I like that caught my attention and will catch other people's attention is the one from 1929. I don't expect you to yes. remember that off the top of your head. No, I do. <laughs> Go on. I know them all. I've spent far too long looking at it. Yeah, the record-breaking competitions are absurd. Right. Um, so what, what, how do you... Committee, Go the committee from that day are definitely like in Shaw would be rolling their graves, I'm sure. But um, yes, how do you phrase uh, it that that this house says that? How, how do you? What's the phrase? This house of? believes that record-breaking competitions are absurd. Right, and and who um, who won that? Um, the motion was I actually can't remember. I think it might have been carried. Right, um, they are absurd. But, uh, they was, are absurd, was, but the great crack. <laughs> yeah, I think absurd is definitely a fair word. Um, I think it was debated, debated quite late in the night too, so our speakers were really feeling it at that stage. Mm. Uh, Some I, very I, impassioned speeches. How many cameras? The, the number of cameras is probably a record in itself. Uh, well, I mean, I think the number of SD cards I've seen uh, is a bit, um, basically, it all has to be, you know, we have witnesses the whole time and partial witnesses and there's all these different types of evidence you have to do, mm. but you have to have like video footage the entire time. And, um, Obviously, 28 hours is a long time to have video footage. So you kind of have to have like several cameras going at all times to make sure that, you know, none of them none of them fail. And so we were like sending people out to get SD cards after Art and Center. I think we we feel like we'd be fit to kind of shoot a Hollywood film at this stage so, after looking at that many cameras for the last 28 hours. So there was you and two teams, um, Kate, Mary, Tom, Anna, Daniela, uh, Zayad, uh, Quiveen and Sebastian. Yes. So That's those were the eight speakers. Yes. They all had to debate in every single debate in the same order. Um, there was like, you know, 
time limits and maximums on the amount of time they could speak for. And then we had a huge team of volunteers who were absolutely amazing. And um, it was like really encouraging for the speakers to see just the level of support. It was really lovely. And um, so many people from college popping, the provost was popping in and out the whole time. It was really lovely. Now, I read somewhere, they've done scientific research about sleep deprivation. Uh, <laughs> and they reckon that 24 hours without any sleep is the equivalent of six drinks that it has the same effect on the brain, uh, etc. So did that manifest itself at all? I mean, I could, I could probably feel that right now, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be, you know, lifting any heavy machinery or, <laughs> yeah, or driving, yeah, driving or whatever it is they can, the medication. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, you're slightly, feel slightly disinhibited, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, slurring your words, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, well, listen, congratulations. That's, so you're going to be in the Guinness Book of World Records twice. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we've got our two certificates already, which is lovely. So, you know, our committee rooms will be very nicely decorated. Right. Um, yeah, so it's very And what's exciting. the plan now, Anya Kennedy, Auditor and Chairperson of the Historical Society Trinity College? Um, I, I think it's a big sleep for everyone is right. the plan right now. Okay. You deserve <laughs> it. Shower. You deserve it. Good, um, good luck. The really quite tired Anya Kennedy there, Auditor of the Historical Society in Trinity College, Dublin talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about the HIST's world record-breaking debate. Now, why are dogs and humans so friendly with each other? It seems like an odd question to put to a physicist, but nevertheless, Colm O'Mungoin wanted answers from UCD School of Education's Shane Bergen. What are dogs and how different are they from wild creatures like wolves? Uh, Dogs are our oldest domesticated pet. We've had dogs with us as uh, humans for tens of thousands of years, back to the time when we were hunter-gatherers. So when you think about the way you see wolves, which are kind of a a relation of dogs, you see them hunting in the wild. They hunt in packs and uh, they can effectively wear out large prey by running after them. And that's what we used to do before we learned how to farm. We used to run after things, hit it with sticks, eventually slow it down, beat it up, eat it. And uh, the only difference is that we had bigger brains, so we learned how to, uh, to adapt and to move on, to cook the meat and to farm. But it made a lot of sense for us to hunt with, with uh, those, um, those wolves, those, those canids, uh, because effectively would, we would have been competing for food at, at the same time. And so it made sense to join forces and to use the, the wolf to, to help the human hunt and vice versa. And over time, they became domesticated. They became man's best friend. And so there are records going back tens of thousands of years. Indeed, there's, a, a, there's a, I suppose, a burial record that's 14,000 years old that shows humans being buried with dogs, which suggests at that point they were actually pets rather than, you know, just, just some sort of wild animal that hung around. But they all come from this, this kind of family of animals called the, uh, the, the canids, which is where we get the word canine Right, but we from. look at wolves today and we think, you know, they haven't substantially changed since back in the day. And yet there's a huge variety of domesticated dogs. How did that happen? <laughs> Selective breeding. So certain species are, not species, certain breeds of dog, and they all are the same species. They have different characteristics. And so what would have happened slowly over time is that uh, breeders would have looked to select out those characteristics. So you think of what your terrier might do in digging out when hunting or a retriever that might go and bring back something that you've killed or or, a, or indeed a collie that might have a herding instinct. And 
these things would have been selective. Uh, and so they would have picked the best pup in a litter and said, you know, um, it, it really shows the characteristics that we want to, to continue. And so they would have selected that one to breed the next generation. These things sort of built up. Right. So all of the different shapes and sizes of dogs is incredible. I don't think there's another species out there that has such variety. You can go from a chihuahua to an Irish wolfhound and they're effectively the same thing. Okay, so, but going back to how did dogs reel us in? Because I I do remember reading a piece once that some dogs' abilities to change their facial expressions made humans look at them and think that they understood us better and as a result it helped develop the relationship. Is there any evidence for that? <laughs> there is, yeah. But we don't fully understand the goings-on of our, our, our dogs and what goes on in their in their heads. But we, we've, we've co-evolved so that they know that uh, um, if they behave in certain ways, we'll respond. We'll give them the treat. We'll take them on the walk. Uh, we'll, we'll look after them. We'll give them the sort of the social company that they really want as pack animals. And so they've learned to figure out how to manipulate us, you could say. Or right. That's how probably to... how they got into the cave in the first place. Isn't <laughs> it, it probably Standing is. Standing at the entrance, looking Whining. all mournful, looking at us with those eyes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they probably did in fairness. And so when you, when you think of the characteristics of dogs, that kind of, you know, the, the head tilt when you're talking to them, um, indeed the wagging of the tail or just the excitement to see you come home. All of these things are done because they know that when they behave like that, we respond in a way that, that makes them feel good. And what is that yeah what now head tilt that they do the head tilt is incredible we don't fully understand the nature of the head tilt but it's thought that the dog may actually be using a good ear uh, when listening uh, right. to you. So when you think about what a, what a dog is experiencing when we're ch- chatting away, they don't understand language, but they will, uh, most dogs understand a certain number of words, most notably their name. So if you're talking away and then all of a sudden you look at the dog and you make eye contact with it and you use a word like its name or maybe something that they might uh, know, like walk or something, they'll look at you that you, you, they now are staring at you thinking, oh, there's something for me. Um, and, you know, effectively, I have your full attention. Certain dogs, however, have been able to learn an incredible number of words. And I'll let you guess what species or breed of dog that might have been. Um, the Border Collie. Yeah, the, the, the genius of the dog world, right? So while certain dogs are used for um, for guide dogs like Labradors and Retrievers, other ones like the Collie are, are known to be the geniuses because they can remember lots of words. And so a, a global search was and done. And fairly complex commands when, it, when oh, you yeah. see a sheepdog trial in action. Absolutely. I was watching it on Nationwide recently and that the dog is able to separate sheep and, and follow sort of what to me just sound like random whistles. But the dog is able to understand what they mean and take action. They can also understand individual words and they can put them in context. So certain collies are able to understand, you know, get the sock and put it with the ball or get the ball and put it with the socks. Who's a clever dog? Not Shane Bergen. He's a clever physicist. And he was talking to Colm Omongo this morning about dogs and their relationship to humans. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, Corkman Kevin Fitzsimons spoke to Oliver Callan this morning about his new musical Twin Flames, which is currently running at the Palace Theatre in Fermoy. 
I am beyond excited at the moment, Oliver. This this has been a long uh, journey for me, and it's just extraordinary to see my show uh, go on in the Palace Theatre from why Twin Flames, the musical. Twin Flames, it's called. And Twin Flames, that's a kind of a, a spiritual thing. It's about souls and so on. That, that, is that where the title comes from? Absolutely. They say that Twin Flames puts, uh, would put soulmates in the halfpenny place, uh, Oliver. Um, it, it is a soul connection. Uh, it's an intriguing concept. There's huge amount of information out there on YouTube and the internet about the concept of twin flames. And apparently we are in a time where there are more twin flame couples than there, there, there ever were before. Um, and it's not all sweetness and light. It can be uh, ah. apparently a, a very, very painful uh, experience to, go, to, to, to be on a, a twin flame journey. And what happens is that uh, the couple normally go through uh, an initial blissful phase of love, uh, but then something always comes between them. Remember, we are talking about one soul and two different bodies. There there comes a time where there is soul recognition uh, between them. And when that happens, they actually, uh, their spiritual energy starts to repel each other. Uh, And forces come together to keep them apart and typically the uh, experience is so painful for one of the twins that it precipitates a spiritual awakening in them. So in my musical, I've built that into the storyline. It's set in Cork City in the 1960s. We have these uh, tremendous state-of-the-art projections by Cormac O'Connor who will transport the audience back to Cork City, back to the streets of Cork City and on to the Majorca Ball as it was known at the time in Crosshaven which was Majorca, the hub for the, the Majorca <laughs> for, it was the hub for the 60s show bands in Cork um, and in my story, um, our, 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 our three characters are heading to Majorca because Phil, our main protagonist, is going to publicly propose to Fiona. Mother because of God. Because his, his buddy told him that women like nothing more than being proposed to in public. In, in 1960s however, Ireland. In 1960s Ireland. Yes, however... Minute, oh yes, oh, there's it, more darkness. Absolutely, yeah. So they, they, they are going to the Majorca on the understanding that there's a fancy dress ball on there. But they discover, to their shock when they get there, that it's not a fancy dress party, it's a masquerade ball. Uh, and now they are the only three people in fancy dress and they don't know what to do. They decide oh. to proceed with the public proposal and it goes horribly wrong. So that's the, that's awkwardness the kind of... Tra- awkwardness tragic or- and tragic awkwardness ensues. For a minute there when you are describing the lovely romantic idea of 1960s Cork and uh, the, the ballroom out in Crosshaven and all of that. But the, the darkness comes obviously from your punk soul, I take it, Kevin Fitzsimons. Um, well, I, I guess so, yeah. Um, I, I, I understood there a few years ago, a few years back, that it occurred to me that there was no real modern uh, musicals that could compare with the classics like Grease, Sound of Music, Music, Blood Brothers and even Rent. And I wondered why there was no modern musicals in, in that vein. OK, we had the Hollywood production of La La Land and that was really yeah. good. But Hamilton, it wasn't really in the style. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Hamilton as well. Um, so I, I set the goal for myself to go about and, and try and write a musical myself that would be in the style of these classic uh, uh, musicals. So I knew if, if, if it was to reach those standards, 
it had to have a really intriguing and, and interesting storyline. I knew the music would have to be world class in it. And I, I actually got Paul Linehan from the, the legendary Frank and Walters on board to be my uh, musical director. And Paul has done an extraordinary job on the, the musical arrangements and the orchestrations. It's, it's fantastic. This has taken how many years to put together? Oh my God, I'd say uh, if I added them all up, Oliver, I'm probably looking at 20 years uh, plus at this stage. 20 and I years? Came so, yeah, and I came so close over those years to, to putting it on uh, mm. in, in different theatres. And for some reason, every time it came close to going on, something would happen and it, it, it would all fall apart at the seams. But what I noticed was taking a positive out of it, every time it came close to going on, the script improved enormously, the music yes. improved enormously and the character. So for, for, for every failure, um, you know... It moved uh, on a wee notch. It, 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 yes, it, it moved on a wee notch, exactly. Uh, and it's in, a, it's in a terrific place now today mm. where I think it will provide a great night's entertainment where people will be, as I said earlier, transported back to Cork City in the 1960s and to yes. that era. And all the music has a 60s uh, flavour as well. Corkman Kevin Fitzsimons there talking to Oliver Callan this morning about his new 60s set musical Twin Flames, many years in the making, which is currently running at the Palace Theatre in Fermoy, County Cork. And that's all I have for you of this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. Until the next time, thanks for listening and good luck.